Hey guys, if you would, grab your Bibles. We are on a series in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most widely recognized sermon in the world, but it's also probably the most misunderstood. The Sermon on the Mount, friends, gives you a picture of what life is like as a citizen in God's kingdom. What life is like as a citizen in God's kingdom. It is not something that is just to be obeyed one day, someday. It is something that is to be obeyed now. But you can't begin to obey the Sermon on the Mount until you recognize who you are in Jesus. And you recognize that Christ himself has perfectly fulfilled the sermon and given you the strength through his Holy Spirit for you to obey in light of his love, not in order to get it. You get those switched around and you miss the gospel. There's a college campus who had a new course called Religion and Spirituality 350. Here's how they advertised it. I want you to hear this. We, the students of RS 350, dating and friendship. Believe that an honest conversation about sex, love, intimacy, hooking up, dating, and other relationships found on campus is both valid and necessary. Although although these issues are widely discussed post-weekend debauchery, they are rarely spoken of with depth and maturity. We think you'll benefit from addressing these topics in a spiritual context within our classroom and want to extend the opportunity to the rest of our college community. We invite not only the students, but the faculty and staff and administration to participate with us. We hope you enjoy. RS350 was a real class and a real campus in the Northeast. When they opened registration, it filled up in seven minutes. I want to extend to you the exact same invitation today. Because what we're about to talk about is the classic place in Scripture where Jesus teaches on the nature of sexual immorality and on lust. And the church needs to be leading this conversation and leading it in a fiercely honest way that is centered on the gospel for us to have hope and for us to get help amidst many of our addictions. Yes, even within the church and certainly outside of our walls. So if you would, would you give your attention to Nathan as he comes and reads from us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you take this word and would you now massage our hearts with it and open us up to the joy of repentance and of learning and of fierce honesty about our own struggles with sexual sin. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, as I said, is a locus classicus, the classic place in the Bible about lust. Lust is a distorted desire 
It's a distorted desire for intimacy with someone who is not your spouse that needs radical intervention for deliverance. Lust is a distorted desire for intimacy with somebody who is not your spouse that requires radical intervention for deliverance. It's a distortion, it's a desire, and you need deliverance. We're going to look at it under those three headings. Are you ready? First, lust is a distorted view of sex. Jesus lays the principle out very clearly, clearly in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent hmm, has already committed adultery with her in, her heart, in his heart. Now, when John Chrysostom, who was the old golden mouth preacher of the early church, he lived in the fourth century, when John Chrysostom was preaching on this text, he noticed something about all of his congregants 1,500 years ago that amidst um, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople and amidst the public baths in Constantinople, amidst the rising popularity of the theaters where people would play out affairs and sexual liaisons with no strings, no consequences to family life, Chrysostom noticed that there were two very interesting things happening in Constantinople back then. One was that in this kind of laissez-faire mentality about intimacy, that there were people who viewed intimacy, physical intimacy, just like an appetite, like your hunger. So as one commentator has said on this verse, that there are some people who think that when you're hungry, what do you, what do, you do? You eat. When you feel sexy, what do you do? You sex, right? <laughs> that's, that's one view of it. It's merely an appetite. And therefore, you should... Open yourself up to all new kinds of sensations, all new kinds of experiences. The pagan world it was full of this kind of sex as an appetite mentality. And what he also noticed was that on the other end, the religious crowd also had a very distorted view of sexuality and of intimacy. They said that sex shouldn't partake of it like the pagans. It's dirty, actually. It's, it, it's, it's to be denied. And on the other hand, the religious crowd tended to say, no, what happens in my body is actually bad and I need to resist it. I need to squelch the desire. But prayer and worship like this and spiritual disciplines, that's what counts. That's what God values. And Chrysostom stood up before his congregation and he said, listen, to those of you who think sex is just an appetite to be enjoyed, you do not understand the power of sex. You're underestimating its power. And for those of you who think sex is bad and it's dirty and not to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage, you are undervaluing its goodness. So whether you undervalue its power or you undervalue its goodness, both the religious and the irreligious have a tendency to miss what God intends for sex to be within marriage. And what does he intend? Listen, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not only says that physical intimacy within marriage is good, do you know what he does? He commands it. Or, in the Old Testament, think about the very, very beginning. God created the world and God created sex to be enjoyed in marriage within Adam and Eve. And what does he do? He gives a benediction. It is good. And in Genesis chapter 2, what do you have? You have 
naked Adam and naked Eve, and Adam breaks into poetic couplets when he sees Eve. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? Within marriage, physical intimacy is so beautiful that Adam couldn't help but become a poet. You just have to sing. That's what God intended for it to become. It is a beautiful thing. Okay, I'll keep going if you need me to convince you more. In, in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 19, you know what it says? It says that a wife's breasts should satisfy her husband. Listen, it's not, I'm just quoting the Bible. In Song of Solomon, do you know what it says in chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon? In chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon, it describes the wife, who is the primary voice all throughout the Song of Solomon, it describes her... To, talking about her husband who is coming to her for physical intimacy. And he says, she says, in Song of Solomon chapter 5, I think it's in here. I don't think it's ripped out yet. She says, His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. Her lips are like, his lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on a base of gold. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friends, O daughters of Jerusalem. Is it just me, or is it getting hot in here? Listen, this is from the Bible. This is why the Hebrews wouldn't allow boys under 13 to read the Song of Solomon, because what she's describing to you is a husband and a wife getting ready for physical intimacy. Now, you say, well, that's not all that vivid. Yes, it is. Tripper Longman is an Old Testament evangelical professor, and this is how he describes what's being taught here. Most English translations, he writes, hesitate at this point because the Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. This is no shy, shamed mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. Listen, the Bible is very uncomfortable for prudish people. And at the same time, the Bible is very fierce in its declaration that sex is to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. Now, why am I talking about sex when this passage is about lust? I'm talking about sex because affairs do not begin when you find yourself in a physically vulnerable situation with somebody beside your spouse. Affairs begin much further back. Affairs begin actually when you begin to eliminate sex from your marriage. Affairs do not begin whenever you find yourself caught up pouring into somebody who's not your spouse. Affairs begin actually when you begin to distance yourself from your spouse. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you seen this in your own life or in the life of your friends? When you begin to eliminate sex from your marriage, when you begin to grow distant, to grow apart, listen, 
The temptation for lust increases exponentially. And the Bible, all throughout the Bible, commands husbands and wives to enjoy each other in a physical way. Now this isn't, I know it feels weird that we're talking in such direct terms about it, but we're doing it because this verse, these verses that talk about adultery and the one that we'll talk about next week about divorce are what one commentator has called the lions at the door. What do I mean by that? That this command to positively enjoy your spouse and negatively to not lust. This command, as we'll see next week, to not divorce except for the reasons that Scripture gives. These are like fierce lions at your door who protect many a men who want to walk outside that door and they convince them to stay in their house. Do you see the image? Lions at the door, this text becomes for us. A clarion call and a warning of the deceitfulness of sin and of the distortion of our view, whether you have the pagan appetite view or you have the religious prudish view, they are distortions of its power or of its goodness of what God has made sex beautiful within marriage. Do you have that kind of view? Lust is a perversion of God's good view of sex within marriage. And when he says you need to cut out, tear out your eye, do you know what he's saying? He's not saying you need to physically cut out your eye because your imagination is the problem, your heart is the problem, not your eyeball. What he's saying is you need to so change your view of sex that you have a biblical idea of it. And once you have a biblical view of it, then you can begin to make behavioral progress. So you have to first see that lust is a distorted view of sex. And secondly, what is it? Lust is a distorted desire. Now, um, I don't know about you, but when I read this verse, when I read it, I would have, if I was a betting man, I would have put everything on the table. That the Greek word that he uses is the word perneia. It's the word in Greek used all over scripture for sexual immorality. And you can imagine when I read this, and I, I was shocked actually, that that's not the word he uses. Do you know the, what word he uses? He uses the Greek word Epithumia, which is the word over-desire. What he's saying is that lust, just like every sin in your life, is taking something that's good and making it an ultimate thing, making it an over-desire. And so you know how this works. You, lust pulls you into the complex nature of your tendency towards sin as fallen Humanity, though yes, we are redeemed, we are freed from the guilt of our sin, but not from its grip, from the penalty, but not from its power. And it pulls you in, and when it begins to pull you in, you find yourself in situations in your marriage where you have eliminated sexual intimacy. And then you find yourself not only eliminating sexual intimacy, but you find yourself encountering someone who is pleasurable to you, not in a physical sense, but maybe, maybe they emotionally connect with you, women, in a way that your husband doesn't. Maybe, maybe, men, you find someone else attractive to you in a way that maybe your wife isn't. And not only have you eliminated sexual intimacy, but now you've encountered someone who you begin to daydream about. It is right there, right there, where you've got to cut off your hand. 
and recognize what is happening to you. That you are in the process of having an affair. It doesn't start when you find yourself physically intimate with somebody who's not your spouse. or It starts when you begin to imagine what could be. That is the danger. And it pulls you in. It's an over-desire. It's a good thing to be enjoyed within marriage. And all of a sudden, you long for it. It becomes an ultimate thing in your life. And Donna Freitas, who is this professor who led this class, Religion and Spirituality 350, she's a sociologist at Boston College, and she said that when they began to have this class, that she began to document the emotional and psychological disintegration of the hookup culture around Boston, and indeed, by parallel, certainly around Tulsa. She said that when students began to give her the impression Right? She's not a Christian. She's just trying to be honest as an objective observer sociologically about students in the hookup culture. When students would talk to them about their relationships, they would talk about it as though they were supposed to have a pagan view of sex. It's just an appetite, just to enjoy around campus. But as they began to talk about it more and more, it wasn't just something that they were supposed to like, but it actually began something that they disliked. In fact, men and women in her class began to confess to her that they actually hated the culture. So they would come in on Mondays after a weekend of debauchery and one night stands and they would confess that they do not like being sucked into this world. And she documented in a book called Sex and the Soul, you can go out and read it, the emotional and psychological disintegration of these college students. And certainly, even more so, is it that way within the confines of marriage. Because whether you're married or whether you're not, you begin to have this kind of subtle disintegration that happens emotionally, psychologically, but also socially, where men, particularly men, who get hooked on pornography, which there has to be at least 10 times more men who are hooked on pornography now than there were when I was in college, at least. They begin to distance themselves from their family. They begin to have a, the hollow look in their eyes, like they're trying really hard to be fully present, but yet they're hiding something that they don't want their wives or their children certainly to know about. And they are socially disintegrating. And friends, if we are to be the hands and the feet of the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus makes people, people of integrity, people of wholeness, putting us back together, then don't you think the first thing for us to admit is that many of us have been disintegrated by the power of sexual sin? Emotionally, psychologically, and socially, Donna Freitas goes on in her book, Sex and the Soul, to document a young man who was so addicted to pornography that he physically disintegrated. What do I mean? He married his wife, and they were unable, unable to enjoy physical intimacy together because he was so hooked on pornography, she could no longer arouse him. Emotional, social, even physical disintegration begins to happen because what? Lust is an over-desire. It's taking something good and beautiful. I mean, isn't this why Ashley Madison is so devastating? I told you several weeks ago about the number of cases in Owasso, right? There's a firm called Technologica 
and they put out a map called Melifidecio that they didn't, they mapped all the accounts. Now we don't know about the active users, you can't parse that information out, but all of the accounts. And do you know how many accounts there were in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Well, let's start with Owasso. In Owasso, our fair city, our city of character, there were 2,201 accounts in Owasso, 86 of which were male, 86% percent were male. In Tulsa, there were 28,479 accounts on Ashley Madison, 84% of which were male. And many of these men and these women who are going to Ashley Madison, listen, they are, they are not going, I think they're not going there because they want to destroy their life and they want to experience emotional and psychological and social and physical disintegration. They, they, that's not what they're going for. What they're going for is they're going for power over something in their life. They're going for a fantasy. That's what they're going for. I mean, maybe some of you had accounts. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past us because we're broken by sin. And you, get, you need to confess that. But you're going for a fantasy. That's why, for example, that Jesus goes in his Sermon on the Mount from anger straight into lust. Why? Because lust and anger are so much more closely linked than you think they are. They both what? They both are about power over other people. In both situations, whether lust or anger, you're both using someone, aren't you, for your ends. That's why Jesus, we think, well, how can you go from anger to lust? Is he like reading off a cue card? No, it's so easy to go there for Jesus because they're both so directly linked in their root. You're seeking power over someone else. So lust is a distorted view of sex. Lust is a distorted desire. And thirdly and lastly, Lust requires radical deliverance and it requires bare-faced repentance. There's a pastor in Denton, Texas named Tommy Nelson who, who's helpful to me here because he describes the state of affairs with six E's. I've already mentioned two of them to you. You eliminate physical intimacy from your marriage. And listen, this, this doesn't happen because you decide to stop enjoying each other. It happens gradually. It, it happens over long periods of time. It happens when you forget to date each other. It happens when you forget to have long face-to-face -to -face conversations together. It happens when the kids are so busy in your lives or taken over by their schedules that you just, you become roommates, not friends. You eliminate it from your marriage and then what? You encounter someone who actually is scratching you where you itch. And then eliminate, encounter, the third E is that you begin to enjoy it. You begin to let them into your life. You begin to enjoy the feeling they give you when they give you the attention that your husband doesn't give you and they begin to have conversations with you, something that you haven't had with your husband in a long time because this passage, even though he's talking to men, he is including women, the Pharisees, just want to take this and say, this is only for men. No, this applies to women just the same. And when you eliminate, when you encounter, then you begin to enjoy it, you begin to expedite it. You begin to find yourself 
consciously going to places, finding ways to connect with this person just by happenstance, just accidentally, where you can see them, where you can talk to them, where you can chat with them. Listen, some of you know this, and dare I say it, some of you are in the midst of this right now. And it is at this stage, it is at this stage that Christian counselors say that you enter into fantasy land when you begin to expedite your presence with somebody else, whether through social media, whether through physical contact. It is at this very stage when you cross the bridge into an affair. And then you begin to express it. You begin to say things to them like, I sure enjoy seeing you around. Well, I enjoy seeing you around. Hmm. You know, um, I, wish, I wish my wife could be more like you. You know, I wish my husband could be more like you. Hmm. I wish that, um, I, I, I wish we could see each other more. I, I like being around you. You know, I wish I could see each other more. I like being around you. Boom. You're in. Nothing ever physical happens, but the damage is done as though you physically were together. That's an affair, friends. When you begin to place somebody else in an emotional sense in the place of your husband or in your wife, you have crossed the bridge into fantasy land. Tommy Nelson says that over the years of counseling, it was that very step when they began to express toward each other that people did not see the lions at the door. They did not see the roar of the lion saying, go into your house. Do not leave. And it is so subtle. And then the only last step, the last E, if you will, is to experience it. And to find yourself waking up in someone's bed who's not your own and realize that the die is cast. And not only have you chosen to emotionally, psychologically, socially, even physically, perhaps, begin to disintegrate, but you've just blown up your house. Your kids will never be the same. I know you don't think it's a very big deal, but it's a big deal. And the reason why you can read this text, and some of you, listen, I know this whole sermon makes you very uncomfortable. That's a good thing to that the Holy Spirit cause you to evaluate your life. It's a healthy thing to drive you into repentance, even toward your husband or your wife. It's a beautiful thing to look back and to see maybe situations or experiences where you were extremely tempted. Maybe you have even had an affair and yet you have reconciled with your husband and wife. It is a beautiful time to rejoice and to look at the way the Holy Spirit has healed you. But if you are gonna make progress in the Christian life, you have to do it in light of the fact that Jesus loves you and he's proud of you. And it was Jesus who left his father's house to come and to rescue you from the temptation, not the temptation, I misspoke, from the sin of sexual sin. And friends, you need to, with barefaced repentance, own up to it. So how do you do that? Well, you have a right view of it. That's what Jesus means by gouge out your eye. Cut it out. You also have to make behavioral changes. You have to cut off your hand. That's what the metaphor means. Change your behavior. It doesn't mean just to lop off your hand. That's not going to be the problem, right? It's in your mind. It's in your heart. He means to make behavioral changes. What are those behavioral changes? First, 
If you find yourself in this situation or with any sin, you have to first ask why. Why am I feeling this way? What does this person, this situation provide me that Jesus does not? What am I hoping to get out of this relationship? What am I hoping to get out of this next step I'm about to make, even though I don't feel totally comfortable with it? What is it that I get out of it that the gospel doesn't provide me? Ask yourself why. I was having lunch with uh, someone this week and, and at, um, at their work, um, they were telling me that their manager requires them to ask five whys before they ever make a decision. That's a, that's a pretty good principle. Why is this happening? Well, why is that happening? Well, why is it? And you ask it five times, you often will get to the root of a management issue. It's the same way with sin, isn't it? You have to ask yourself why. Do you ask yourself why? Because most of you just throw yourself headlong into it as though four sheets to the wind. The second thing you have to do is you have to ask yourself, what's next? And this, if I can speak very personally, is probably the most helpful thing to me. What's next? Because sometimes we don't think well about our sin at all. We think, well, look, we're, we're, um, we're good Christian people, and this is a sin, and therefore we shouldn't do it. And so cut off the behavior, and let's go over here. But you haven't actually thought about your sin enough. Now, I don't mean you fantasize about the sin itself. I mean you push through that, and then you ask yourself, okay, what happens after that? You think about sin better, deeper, further. What's it going to be like whenever... Um, she finds that email. What's it going to be like when, when um, you have to confess to your wife and to your children that you had an affair? What's that going to be like? Listen, that scares me to death. And that's a holy fear. That's a good thing to fear. It's a lion at the door. When Elizabeth Edwards found out that her um, husband, senator, and one time... Uh, actually two-time presidential Democratic presidential candidate John Edwards had an affair. Elizabeth Edwards said that she screamed and then she cried and then she went into her bathroom and she threw up. Imagine your wife, men. <laughs> it's a very helpful exercise. Women, imagine what it would do to your husband. You have to ask why, you have to ask what next. And then thirdly and lastly, you have to go, where do you go from here? Don't be surprised by lust's power. Don't be surprised by its grip in your life. Don't be surprised by the power of sin. That's what the joy of the gospel gives you. You have an honest perspective of the power of sin. And at the same time, you have an honest perspective of the hope that you have in light of what Jesus Christ has done for you by giving you his perfect righteousness, by covering you with love, to remove the shame and to drive you to repentance in joy, in joy for what he has given you. A perfect record completely spotless, covered in his righteousness. And he loves you so much that he takes you just as you are. But friends, he loves you too much to leave you that way. And he wants you, he wants you to take practical steps 
to help with your struggle with lust. So what do you do? If you're married, listen kids, I know this is a hard question to hear asked of your parents and they're sitting next to you, but are you who are married, are you physically intimate with each other on a regular basis? Yes, you heard that at church. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. And if you're not, are you talking about why you're not? Sometimes the temptation comes after you have surgery. Sometimes the temptation comes after you have a new child. Sometimes the temptation comes when you're sick. Listen, it, it just, it, it's, you need to talk about it. Are you talking about it? It's a good thing to do. Women, sometimes the only way you're going to get your husband to talk is by enjoying physical intimacy with him. Men, sometimes the only way that you're going to be able to enjoy physical intimacy with your wife is if you actually talk to her. Isn't it beautiful how God made us? Mars and Venus. You know what I'm talking about. So let's do that. Most women are tempted to have affairs. It's not physical for them, it's emotional. They feel like their husband only wants to be intimate with them on his schedule and his time because she's given herself. But listen, are you protecting your wife, husbands, by loving her and by having long face-to-face conversations with her? When you were little, men, you learned from your mother how to have a conversation with other people. Let's do that with our wives. How about it? It's very easy. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be little men. I'm just trying to be honest. It's easy. Most affairs arise between, because there's a growing gap between the emotional health and the physical health of that relationship. Not only do you need to ask why, do you need to ask what's next, do you need to ask where to go from here, you need to talk as a couple and you need to have a safe place to talk outside of your house. Men, you need a place with other guys that you can talk about your struggle with lust, your struggle with pornography. I don't have a struggle with pornography. You say, well, okay, that's fine. There may be guys around you who do. This is an application for our congregation because it's a good application for our congregation. And you need to have a safe place where you can go. Please, let's... Community groups, maybe you need to break up into men and women tonight and talk about it together, separate. Community group leaders, you, make, you use discernment on whether that's the case or not. Find a safe place. Create a safe place where you can do that. If you don't have a safe place, please call me and we can go to lunch together. We can begin to meet together. You need that. Women, you need the same. You need a place where you, it's not like beat up your husband night, but you need a place where you can go and you can talk with other men about the state of your marriage and be honest and protect each other and love each other. That is what it means when I prayed earlier in the pastoral prayer to extend friendship, extend the glories of the gospel into Owasso, Sky 2, Claremore, Bartlesville, Tulsa. Because these are conversations that have got to happen, but they're not easy to happen unless you take the initiative to make them so. Would you do that? The power of sin in our life, especially as it revolves around sexual sin, is so powerful. Its grip is so tight. You need friends to help you undo that grip. This passage is a lion at the door. It reminds us that when you're tempted to step out, it calls you back in. And you know who you see whenever you turn and you return to your house? Listen, Jesus' arms of love are open to you. He cares for you. 
And those of you who know that you need to have hard conversations together as a couple, know that your Savior knows that. And he is ready and willing for you to begin to have those conversations with him. And maybe give you the strength to have those conversations with your spouse. I want everybody to look at the acrylic stands over there that have these kinds of books in them. Do you see that acrylic stand? We order little booklets. We get every quarter a whole new shipment in. And I'm gonna read some titles to you that I want you, if you're so interested, to take. There's so many over there. Listen, get them for a friend. If they're not for you, that's fine. Just pick them up and read them. When you love an addict. Hmm? Sexual addiction, freedom from compulsive behavior. These are worth their weight in gold. They're very small, but they're very helpful. Raising sexually healthy kids. These are just tools in the toolbox to help you begin to have a right view of it. What's wrong with a little porn when you're married? Hmm? It's a great booklet to have. Restoring your broken marriage. These are all available over there. They're on the front of that table. Please avail yourself to them. They're free. Take them home. Take them for a friend if you're worried about taking them for yourself. Gouge out your eye. Have a right view of sex within the confines of marriage. It's a beautiful thing to be enjoyed. Watch out for the signs of having an affair. Don't cross that bridge into fantasy land. Cut it off. And have the kind of friendships you need to be able to talk about it when you're tempted. Not only that, but cut off your hand. Take practical steps. Meet with other men. Meet with other women. And perhaps the first practical step you need to take is by entering into honest repentance before you come to the Lord's table, which we are about to come to in just a moment. Jesus, your Savior, loves you so much that he takes you just as you are. He loves you since before the dawn of time, before the world began. But he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay the way we are. So come run to this table in the joy of repentance and allow your Savior to sing over you his love for you because he is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily of the valleys. He is your beloved. And he is the one who puts a banner over you, which is his love. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to be fiercely honest about our struggle with such a difficult but very personal, very personal issue namely sexual sin. And we pray that now as we come and prepare for this table, that you would help us to run to it in the joy of repentance. And for those of us who need to have honest conversations with our spouse, oh Lord, we pray that you will give us the courage to do that, to man up, to trust the gospel enough to begin to have that honest conversation. And if we need to start with other men, other women to have that conversation, to give us wisdom and how much we should talk about with our spouse, would help us to do that too. Thank you for the lions at the door. Thank you, Jesus, that your banner over us is love. In Jesus' name, amen.